So I want to welcome everyone. I want to welcome all of you. <clears throat> this is a continuation of the continua of practice. That uh, This is actually the seventh talk in that uh, series, in this series. And uh, there'll be one more talk before a September month break that I'm taking, and then back to this subject in October and November. Uh, I think uh, it's important to get a sense of the dimension of the subject. Uh, I try to give you ways approachable, uh, graspable, and uh, pragmatic systems, processes that you can uh, recount as your spiritual journey. And sometimes there are perceptual shifts in consciousness, much like the talk last week when we went from the horizontal stream of reference to the vertical. And sometimes there are very practical applications and action, which is the talk tonight. Uh, but which also are equally as important in the adventure and the journey of moving ourselves deeply into the spiritual process of awakening. You can't leave any of it behind. You can't leave the, uh, the perceptual shifts, the magnitude, the universal change that occurs, uh, which is almost systemic to the process. But you, also you can't leave behind any of the actions. And what we often do is that we have, a, we get caught in of the allurement of the perceptual shift, the, the big vision of it. But we forget the practicality of the day-to-day -day transformation that has to occur in order for that shift to occur. Because really, where we are going is, where, is dependent upon the actions we're taking now. And that's why uh, you could sum up the spiritual journey in, in a is uh, truth in and truth out without distortion. Seeing clearly and responding to that clear seeing. Uh, and it's the distortion, our opinions, our knowledge, our judgments, our perceptual uh, orientation, that creates a distortion so that either in the distortion in seeing reality as it actually is and not according to how we want it to be or the distortion of how we respond to reality again in how we wish it were. And so it's the cleaning up of that distortion which is really the whole of the spiritual path. So the application that we're going to be talking about tonight, which is a theme that I have talked about in the past, but not quite to the way I'm presenting it tonight, which is uh, the bl blame to accountability. <clears throat> and we, we, we all start off very well defended. Uh, often you notice that immediately when you speak to someone, you know that you just can't get in there. You can't, they just aren't acknowledging any of the processes they're going through because 
There's, it's like you're, you're playing a ping pong match. Everything you say is being met with a paddle response. And uh, over time, hopefully, uh, we are more able to uh, assimilate, to allow for the release of some of the defense mechanisms that keep us so distorted and so un, un, uh, afraid of being the person we believe we are internally. But So this movement from blame or judgment, however you want to frame it, to total accountability is really an action statement that I'm hoping we're all in the process of doing. Again, if, you expect, if we expect to move to total accountability, we have to be engaged in the actions now that are necessary for that to occur. This isn't a delayed response. This isn't, I'll go listen to the lecture, I love how he frames this, or I'll read about it in a book, and it excites me, and then tomorrow I'm back at work same thing. It's really the encouragement, volitional encouragement, it starts volitional, volitionally encouraging ourselves to make the changes necessary for this process to unfold. And that's dependent upon each one of us. That can't be a teacher derivation. That doesn't come from me. doesn't come from any teacher. That has to come from your own intention, from your own sp spiritual pull and yearning. So this, this sense of accountability uh, is, uh, is essential because without emotional, and I'm going to talk about emotional accountability tonight, emotional accountability, we just we get lost. And you can see, it's a, in particular, it's around the emotional reactions we have where most of the distortions that take place in our body and minds occur. Uh, Emotions, in particular, are just poorly understood by, by all of us, really. We just don't know how to handle them. We're so afraid that they implicate us, that they sort of uh, say something that's true about us when we have an emotion. And so where our defenses arise most mechanically, most conditionally, is during our emotional expressions of ourselves. We're afraid to show people our sensitive side, our tenderness. We become guarded and defended uh, as a way to keep people from coming in. And in this culture, how we keep people from just scratching beneath the surface is by keeping them on our appearances. If we can hold people's sight, their, their perceptions on our appearances, which is how, why we value youth, why we value beauty, why we value material objects, is because that's the reflective way that keeps people very superficially engaged with one another. Uh, and it's these, but the, it's the intimacy, the willingness to move beneath that and to expose some of the emotional side of our psyche, that really the depth and the discovery of ourselves lies. Now, uh, let me just say that uh, I uh, want to present this 
uh, emotions by talking about emotions, but I want to, I just want to frame them. It's interesting because I, I was, it just came to me, uh, I was writing, writing a book and it came to me that all of the negative emotions that we feel are, that I could think of, perhaps you can think of one that doesn't fit this set, are really reactions uh, to being vulnerable. Uh, fear, anger, jealousy, all of them, really, that I could think of. And it's when we feel vulnerable is when we feel unprotected, when we feel undefended. And it's because that's unbearable uh, to, a sense of, to the sense of me, uh, to feel that exposed, that raw, that naked, the defense mechanism comes back with a reaction that reacts against that vulnerability. So th that's it. That's really a central point to this talk. But all of the positive emotions that I could think of, kindness, love, generosity, patience, comes from the emanation of love. Right? They're emanations of love. But you don't, we don't get to love except by becoming vulnerable. So you can see that the blockage to love is the very thing that keeps us defensive and self-guarded which is vulnerability. We have to expose ourselves to kind of the rawness of our life in order to have any connection to love at all. But what we usually do when we come to that point of vulnerability is not concede ourselves to love, but to react to the state of being unprotected with a demonstrative anger or fear or a multiple way, impatience or you name it, judgment. So, so much of the path is the willingness to, sort, to, to expose ourselves again and again. See, there's a moment as we march through this thing, let's just because I use it as an, uh, an example, often uh, it comes quickly to mind, and that's the experience of 9-11 that many of us had, where, you know, you're sitting and watching people jump from towers uh, to their death, suicidal, often holding hands with one another, and your heart's just pouring out as you're seeing this massive destruction in front of you. Until you, and it's so vulnerable, You're, we are all so vulnerable because we're all so connected to that sense of mutual destruction that's at hand. And there's, but there, there's a tolerance when you're 3,000 miles away sitting in your living room watching this on TV, that's very different than being in the building itself. And so from my vantage point, I could easily react to the vulnerability and towards the self-protection, towards the anger, towards the vengeance. 
that doesn't really help anything. You think it helps protect you. Meanwhile, 3,000 people lie on the street waiting for your heart to connect. You see, we're very quick to know the right response, very poor to respond from the interconnected love that is there to really meet us. And so this movement, I'd like to take apart emotions for a minute because I think this is extremely important to every one of us who has an emotional life, that as we, as we begin to sense an emotion, let us say an emotion of anger. The first thing that we have to do is become conscious that we are reacting, that we are defending, that we are contracting. At this point, that's all that's necessary. Just, oh, okay, I've, I'm, you know, I'm out of control here. That's the first step in being able to perceive and meet the anger so that it begins to open to the vulnerability. Now, the anger got there by reacting to the vulnerability. So we have to unwind this whole mechanism by which we became angry and re-expose ourselves to the vulnerable state. So the first thing is just to acknowledge that there's reaction going on, that it's a very self-protected, armored reaction, which is fair enough. I'm not condemning any of this. I'm just saying that it doesn't settle anything. It doesn't get us closer to where our heart's yearning to our spiritual journey. You can be angry your whole life, but what does that do in getting you towards the right side of the continuum? Not very much. None, in fact. But the first conscious awareness of the anger begins to settle us comfortably on the path. The second is to wake up and pause to the defensive coverings that are there. So that we recognize that I'm angry, Okay, and we never recognize that anger is a defensive posture. It's a contracting, self-protective posture. Okay, that's good. But then the wisdom in me can be stronger than the need to continue to contract. And I can just sit there with the anger and let it, let's see what, let's expose the anger to the multiple, to the multiple states that form anger. Because anger isn't just one emotion. I hope you all understand that. If you sit with anger, you'll begin to sense a number of different responses that anger contains, including fear, despair, sadness, grief, rawness, all of these, just sitting with anger, just feeling the anger and the composite of anger, not doing anything but just allowing the anger to settle with us, not as a single thing in itself, but to begin to show us its composition. Then, the next step, once we have seen the multiple states within anger, is to start walking any one of those states back to the state of vulnerability. Let us say grief. 
Now you just hold grief. You see, so much. The reason that grief was one of the passing emotions that led ultimately to anger was that there was something that I cared about deeply that was kept from me, and that's grief. It's also the root cause of anger. So within anger is grief. So if I'm willing to feel the grief of the loss of what I hope for, in the case of 9-11, it's obvious, you know, you, safety is one of the things you counted and wanted. You didn't want the loss of life, the sorrow, the grief of seeing people die in front of you, all of that. So we sit and, we, oh, oh, I see the grief, I see the despair, I see the sadness. And you just let that come back into focus rather than the anger becoming, the anger is a blurred lens of many emotions. And as we begin to focus the lens back, you begin to see each of the dispositions and grief is one of them. And as you sit with the grief, you start feeling tender. And as we feel tender, we realize there's a vulnerability to being tender. People who are grieving usually recognize the tenderness of that grief very quickly. And I say, great, you know, no one would have ever wished this loss upon you, but it's taking you to a very important juncture, spiritual juncture, where tenderness and vulnerability are right at hand. There's nothing you can do to pretend that that person, place or thing, still exists. And therefore there's no substitute to the grief but feeling the grief. The loss of control, the loss of security. And as we begin to re-expose ourselves to tenderness and from tenderness to vulnerability, we now have access to love. We now have a renewed acquaintance not to the response and contraction of anger but to the very sense of connection itself. Now many of you probably have been thrust upon some drama or trauma in your life where you couldn't bring anger. It was too devastating. A sudden loss of a loved one, for instance. Just to tell you a story that stays with me to this day, it was many years ago, I was teaching at IMS, and one of the yogis there came in and wanted an extended interview, which I gave her, and she told me the story of her eight-year-old son who had been out in recess, swinging from a parallel bars, and one of the boys that was in his class, a kind of bully, grabbed his legs while he was swinging from the bars, and he fell, cracked his head open, and died of a skull fracture. So the, the woman, who the mother, hears how the rest of the children are treating the boy who did this at school. Two weeks after her son died, 
she goes to the school and she stands in front of the class and she says, I will not make another tragedy of my son's death. I ask you to befriend this boy, not to cast him out. Okay, so you see the... I mean, most of us would have fumed for revenge. Send him to a rehab or something. I don't know. But she stayed the course of the vulnerability of her grief and was able to meet the situation with love and therefore heal in a much deeper way than her vengeance would have ever allowed. What I'm suggesting is that we undervalue the responses from love. We think we should be with something as dreadful as whatever happened to us, like 9-11. We need to exert more control, more influence, a tighter sense, a tighter sense of volitional force. And that anger is the only emotion that adequately expresses that vengeance. That's because we don't trust love. We don't trust that there could be another response. We think it's mushy. We think it's maudlin. That it's confusing. That it will lead to quick forgiveness too quickly. Right? We want them to suffer a little. And so the strewn bodies pile up. I'm not suggesting that you disarm. I'm just suggesting that the course of vulnerability leads to a very different response and one that ultimately may heal the situation much quicker than the devastation of our vengeance. So the exposure and the way that actions then come from the vulnerability of the emotion. Right? It's much more in line with the truth of the situation. It's the grief that's really at the heart of, of my emotional response here. Not the anger. The anger is a secondary, a covering over. It's a reaction to the grief, the vulnerability of the grief. And if I can just stay with the grief, stay with the tenderness, your responses, our responses, will be much more appropriate to what's occurred than the response of anger. Now, there are two ways of dealing with emotions once we have gotten to the basis of what that emotional response is. Once we have distilled it down from all of the confusion, of all the it distilled it down to the central tenderness of grief or whatever it might be, there are two ways to deal with that emotion. One of them is taught to you on your first day of meditation practice, 
And that is the third foundation of mindfulness, where you allow the emotion just to be in your consciousness without reacting to it, without judging it, without condemning it, without creating any story around it. The content is seen differently in differentiation to the emotion itself. The emotion is just held in awareness. That is one of the hardest things you'll ever try to do. The reason it's hard to do is that what we're asking you to do is feel an emotion without justifying the fact that you have it or why you have it. And what is compelling for all of us is to know why it's there. We want to know why we're feeling this. And so we look out from feeling that to try to acknowledge the situation, circumstances, or person that played the, the, that was the culprit to me having to feel this emotion. And that's where the blame comes in. Rather than just being able and willing to hold the emotion without trying to rationalize why we have it or justify it. We do so because we think, again, that having an emotion means that we are, in that moment, weak as the emotion would indicate. So if it's fear, I'm a coward. If I, in my anger, I'm out of control. Whatever it might be. So we look around and, and, and we firm up an inward monologue within ourselves which keeps us relating to the emotion as something that was given to us. Something that we have to, an ordeal that we have to go through. And so the tension associated with the emotion remains. And it takes a long time for us to learn this third foundation principle of total allowance, of just letting the emotion be without recoiling in, justifiable, in a justifiable narrative. That's the most important instruction about emotion. And it is given in the beginning class. How many of us have moved it from the beginning phase of our practice? For most of the emotions we feel in our lives, that's the appropriate spiritual action to take, doing nothing with it. Simply allowing its presence to be. It only lasts so long, it only stays for so long before it evolves out of our consciousness completely. Now there's a second way of dealing with emotions, which I've spoken about before, but I want to go into again tonight. Because emotions often, over time, form emotional assumptions. When we were children, we didn't have the advantage of maturity. We took in whatever the adult world was giving us. And usually it was in some sense of self-degradation, some sense of me being limited and being scolded and blamed and punished, I held myself in a very disagreeable light. 
And over time, there's an emotional assumption that parallels those memories. And we keep feeding those memories, or those memories keep feeding us, into believing that we are, as we were at age 5, even now that we're 55. In some way, we haven't grown emotionally mature because we've never examined the assumptions that have been driving us our whole life. Now, when those come up, you can feel them differently than just the passing of an emotional response that occurs when somebody cuts you off on the road or something. It's not light. There's a bitterness and a narrative that comes up and a spite and a reaction that you can feel. At that point, just being with the emotion for most people in most situations is not sufficient because the narrative has tied itself not just to an emotional display but all to a, also to a self-configuration and to a belief of how that emotional assumption feels you are as a person. I'm not very good. I'm unworthy. I'm insufficient. I can't. I, every, it's all up to me. There are many, many, many different expressions of those assumptions. What's important for us to do when we see them coming up is for us to be able to hold not just the emotion but also the content from which that emotion is arising. And this is very different than the first expression of emotional awareness, which was just to see the emotion as an emotion. Here's the important ingredient, the important difference, is that this emotion, these emotional assumptions, are coming out of our body tissue. They are locked into the tissues of our body, the very cells of our body. And given situations that were like the situation in which they were invested, they'll come out. And they come out with the same trauma because we haven't really matured in relationship to that assumption over all the years that we've been alive. They come out with a strong reaction, reactionary base. Here's the difference. It's how we listen to the accompanying narrative through which the emotion is arising. There are two expressions of this narrative. There's the narrative of me in present moment talking about feeling shameful again. Oh, here I go again. I felt shameful since I was little. God, I don't think I'm ever going to get out of it. That expression that is most contemporary, right, is feeding the conditioning of the emotional assumption and just invests a whole level of conditioning back into it and it will rise again not just as it was but also with the additional conditioning of that added phrase. There is a way to listen to our emotional assumptions that we hear the narrative as actually from the past, not from the present. You see, the past is always coming through us. All of our reactions are past conditioning that just have the expression in the present moment. 
And as we open to the present moment, these are the react, this is the sum total of our, of what's surfacing. Our emotion, but also the logic on which our emotion is based. And all of the memories that were associated with how they were invested way back 50 years ago. That's what's arising. And it's possible to differentiate those two forms of thought. The form of thought that is currently adding another layer of conditioning to the emotion as it arises, or the thought that comes up as an expression of the emotion as it's being, as it's being, uh, as it's arising in our consciousness. And it takes a while to get a sense of what, which, whether this is language from the past or current language. But they, if energetically it feels very different. And you can get it over, if you're sensitive, if you're willing, wanting to hear the difference, you'll begin to sense the difference between those two verbal responses. What we don't want to do is to add present moment thought a new narrative to what's arising from the past, because that's just renewing the conditioning. Do you see that? What we do want to do is allow the old expression, the old thoughts, to come up and out of us. So the past is not reacted to with a new expression of how disagreeable we are, but just allowed to surface and dissipate in the wonders of the of the expanse of awareness. That will take some training to know the difference. It is very possible for each of you. Not only very possible, but approachable. If you're interested in those two different ways. Because that's in fact what's happening. The you of the past is being stimulated anew. And so that old conditioning is accessible to consciousness. It's coming out. It's like the molten lava from an old volcano. It comes way down in the earth and erupts from the depths of the earth. Right? That's very different than sitting at the rim of the volcano. Volcano and claiming something about it from the rim. Let it come out. Let it come from the tissues. You'll feel it from the tissues. And all it wants to do is to be felt, to be known, to be healed. But it comes with a narrative. It comes often with memories. It comes with a shared story. And that shared story has such trauma associated with it because when we were five, we had no strength. Again, we were vulnerable. In order to defend ourselves against that, we calcified the logic of who of those emotional assumptions. Calcifying does not stop their eruption. It just puts a gap between our conscious attention and their everyday, every moment presence. So we've distanced ourselves. And that distance is 
the lack of maturity that we have around those emotional overlays. So we have to re-expose ourselves to that. It's not, again, to find a cause. We're not... See, these two, two different ways of working with emotions aren't that much different at all. Both of them are taking us out of the picture. In the first way, we're not adding a new narrative to an emotion as it's arising. We're just letting it be what it is. And that takes us, the distortion element, out of it. In the second deep historical emotional assumptions that arise, we're letting the past come through the present without bringing anything from the present and infusing it in the past. We're just letting it come out. We're letting the volcano erupt. And in that eruption, the awareness matures itself to that response. And that's where emotional intelligence comes from. It comes from the awareness of seeing and living the emotions that we have been up until this time protecting ourselves from. Again, it's a case of be feeling vulnerable to ourselves, of feeling the need to protect ourselves from the world, of our inward world. Now this is where accountability comes in. Because when those emotional assumptions arise, for such a long period of time, we have placed blame upon those assumptions, usually self-blame. Here I am again doing the same stupid things I've always done. Or, depending upon our defense mechanisms, blaming someone else for it, or trying to compensate for that feeling by doing other things, which doesn't or prohibits others from seeing what I believe myself to be. This is where accountability comes in. Accountability says what's ever inside is inside of me. It's not from the outside inside. It's in me. I have to deal with it in me. I can't deal with it in me by claiming you made it happen. You made me this or that. You made me upset. You made me whatever. That's the loss of responsibility, of accountability, the loss of integrity and the loss of maturity. Okay, it's in me. That's it. It's a, com it's a complete system. It's in you. It's not, has been given from nowhere. It wasn't given to you by your mother. It isn't a derivation of anything. It's in you, locked in your cells. The importance of accountability at this phase is not to self-blame. Okay, I, I can understand that I can't blame you for making me angry but I can blame myself. I'm in here with this thing. It must be because me. No, you've got to be more mature spiritually than that. If you keep doing that, you're adding present day guilt to past emotional baggage. And you'll never ever spin your way except into more dizziness. You can't do that. Where, are, where is the you that's blaming anyway? This is a system of contingencies. That's what the mind and body is. There's no owner of them. There's no locator. There's no one 
to point fingers at in any direction you go. And therefore, you have to just allow it to be there, accountable to it. And the more accountable you are to it, and the less you rise in opposition, the more mature and the quicker you'll understand that pattern. So before I end, I want to get to the false nirvana of this from blame to accountability. But I want to reemphasize before I do that this is an action that each of us need to take ongoingly. Don't just listen to it as a lecture and forget all about it. If we want to move on the continuum, this is an absolute necessity to do it. Or else we piece we partition ourselves, the emotional partition. We're like, that part's not okay, and that part is, and this part. I once went to a, a shaman, and I have no belief for or against shamanism. I'm always interested in that kind of thing. I went to a shaman, and she did this thing, went into some kind of trance while I was in the room and laid down. She says, I've found three spirits that separated uh, that are holding pieces of you and I've gathered them and I've given them back to you and she says most people are much are fractured like that they've given parts of themselves away disowned themselves and most people don't have access to shamans to to bring them back but this is one way to heal ourselves to this without shaman intervention. <laughs> okay, let me get to the false nirvana. The false nirvana is the place where you don't want to give up where you've grown, what you've grown into. You don't want to move on beyond it. And there can be, and most of us probably know someone who has a kind of unshakable psyche they're so emotionally mature and steady, but that that can be you. You can also feel a sense of image associated with that, and sometimes manipulation. Because if I can sit there across from you and just hold my gaze in steadiness and let you squirm, because you will, you see, that's power. And you find a lot of people, some spiritual adept people, forcing that kind of immaturity, really, but emotional steadiness as a form of power. I suggest you don't go in that direction. It's ugly. It doesn't make anyone feel connected. Okay, so let's get to the counter-influence. The counter-influence is the place where if we're going to move on, we realize we have to give ourselves over to the process of moving on. And this comes in this particular continuum at the place where 
where the sense of protection feels so good sometimes, you know, to be angry, to be righteous, to be in your own power center. And many of us have been deprived of that power center when we were small. And so anger allows us to sort of be, to take a moment of central position in life. And it feels great to have that consummation of one's own righteousness at the core of our action. And much of social action, not much, but a lot of social action comes from that sense of righteousness. But that's not love. That's self-protection. That righteous anger is a response, a reaction to the vulnerability of having a world in which the climate is out of control. Of having a world where 9-11 could happen. So we build armies, man the ships, But that's not where the spiritual journey goes. The spiritual journey moves towards tenderness, towards vulnerability, towards exposure. That's where connection lies. Connection does not lie in the bitter way that you present the world in ideological terms. It lies in the tenderness of your perceptions. In the vulnerability of your connection. May it be so. Can we sit for a minute or two? You can't be more vulnerable than when you're still. You see? In stillness you know nothing. You have no opinions. Your defenses have been dropped. But since the treasure that stillness offers Since what stillness could, can offer and is offering that vengeance never could, that your defenses could never access this level of connection. That's where the spiritual journey is going. Bearing the heart. So if you have any questions or comments, I'd be happy to respond if I can. Yes, in the back. You'll have to speak loudly.
can I speak to self-compassion? I'd be happy to. The, uh, one of the responses, the, a, a mature response to yourself in pain, that, that's what's beautiful about pain, is that there's a, I think it's called a motor neuron or something, some kind of neuron, <laughs> that automatically, empathetically connects with what that person is feeling and opens to that. It's kind of a, I don't know, a connected neuron somehow. What it's called? A mirror neuron. Mirror neuron, thank you. That ability to do so is also in us to our own source of pain. It's not just compassion for those around me. It's also, if we're willing to do it, the problem is that we have so much self-contempt that that often blocks the vulnerability necessary for those mirror neurons to adequately reflect the compassion. It's, that's why we need to work on the self-contempt first so that we come to the, a place where that's been settled sufficiently where we can actually open love for ourselves to ourselves. And then it's just a process of following love downstream. The second part of your question... So she's saying that one of the ways that she opens is that when she sees somebody in pain, rather than getting caught in her reactions to that person, she opens to the fact that that pain is shared, that you also have pain, that you have that, that as a common heritage, right? right? So what you're doing in that moment is dropping your guard. You're using skillful means to drop your protective reactions so that you can feel the tenderness uh, and be vulnerable to the pain that your heart is being exposed to in another. Do you see? So however you get there is wonderful. Getting there is important. Right? So that you feel, if it's not, I mean, we, we automatically do it because that's the, that's the intrinsic response of our mirror neurons to pain, is to open, is to be empathetic. It's already there. It's just lightningly fast. We feel the vulnerability of that person or ourselves in connection with that person and tighten down and contract around. And in that way, we feel protected from the pain, the exposure of that pain. So that's really what metta is and other forms and expressions of talking yourself down so that you can meet the pain once more.
Practical tools to connect with the pain. Well, I, I tried to give seven of them in this talk. Uh, and uh, uh, the, essentially they are to, first of all, acknowledge you, you, nothing happens without being conscious. Nothing, there's no growth possible without being conscious. So you've got to be conscious of your reactions. That's the first step towards growth. The next step is to sit with whatever emotion you're feeling, and I use the example of anger, until it shows its composition, that it's not just anger. It's not, you're not thinking about it. You see that behind the anger there's also sorrow. You feel unprotected. You feel fearful. You also sense grief. You see, all of these things are the composite that anger is made of. You're not forming these as some kind of intellectual exercise, you're actually feeling them as you feel anger. And then you're taking the derivation of your anger, which is usually grief or some form of tenderness, and coming back to the sense of vulnerability by holding the sense of grief, by allowing the grief to be there, which you ran away from, which is why the anger took over. Now you're reacquainting yourself with the grief until the grief and allowing the grief into your consciousness, and you can begin to feel the tenderizing effect that grief has upon t consciousness, and you're getting used to feeling tender and vulnerable. When you get used to feeling tender and vulnerable, this whole thing speeds up, and you see the value of being tender and vulnerable, because it allows you to have a whole different response than you ever would have had in your statement of anger. And that encourages more and more of the same. And so the whole thing starts. But it has to start somewhere. And it always starts with a moment of awareness. Oh, I feel an anger. Instead of just getting lost in it and berating and yelling and screaming, just wait a second. Or maybe it's after that event because you can wait until after that event. Go up in your room and say, okay, I blew it. Yes, you did, but that doesn't mean you can't renew your acquaintance to what just went on. You can bring up that memory. Okay, let me see what just went on. And, that, and then you can feel the anger re-spike itself. There, now you have some distance to the person, place, or thing that initially caused the reaction. Now you can work with it in a more, uh, in a, uh, in a more gentle way. Right? So don't be afraid to conjure it back up in memory and then work with it as a memory as a po because you've weren't able to in the midst of it. And as you begin to do that over and over again, and it does take repetition because the knee-jerk response is to be self-protected. That's what got us where we are today. It just isn't going to get us into tomorrow. There's too many of us. We can't keep doing, living the life we've lived if there's even going to be a tomorrow. So this is incumbent upon us all to change the, our our energy going forward. Yes, last question. Yes. Say again, I can't hear you. Yeah. 
Do you know that in baseball, a good hitter only hits three out of ten? Okay. Okay. Uh, okay. Good. Then do, go wherever you are and don't judge how well you're doing. If you do that, you're throwing yourself back. You see, you just, it doesn't matter. So you start out a poor hitter, you know? It's okay. It's okay. Right? Yes, there is a woman here. Yes, go ahead. Okay, so the question is about vulnerability and sharing that vulnerability. Okay, now listen carefully. Shared vulnerability is called intimacy. And that's what most of us really long for, but are afraid of. Exposure, self-exposure. And I have worked with many, many people over the years who they realize that they can only get so close in their relationships before they have to find something wrong so they can safely pull themselves out of it. Right, and this it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't get any better with time. You have to get better with time because the reaction isn't going to get better. You have to be saying, "I don't care if if I fall apart in front of this guy or whomever." It's helpful to pick a safe partner first before you can just be as you are authentically. So you have a friend or someone who is, you've known your whole life and then you just start moving the conversation into a different level of intimacy, you see? All of us, most of us know someone who we can have that. It's to begin that journey to sort of lubricate that, that system in us that wants to move in that direction but is afraid to do that. That's all. Okay, all. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.